You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Campus Beat. I'm Dinah Jansen. Today we are chatting with Professor Arthur MacDonald, Nobel Laureate in Physics and the Gordon and Patricia Gray Chair in Particle Astrophysics Emeritus in the Department of Physics, Engineering Physics, and Astronomy at Queen's University. Our topic today is the September 30th, 2020 announcement from the Canadian members of the Mechanical Ventilator Milano, or MVM Consortium, that Health Canada has given Vexos Inc. authorization to manufacture and supply 10,000 ventilators in Canada to treat patients most severely affected by the COVID-19 virus. Thank you, Art, for joining us in the virtual Campus Beat studio on CFRC today. My pleasure. Now, before jumping into Health Canada's authorization of Vexos Inc.'s manufacturing of the MVM, tell us about this international initiative and how it got underway earlier this year. Certainly. Well, um, I and a number of others at Queen's and other universities across the country uh, have been collaborating on uh, a search for dark matter at uh, the underground laboratory Snow Lab in Sudbury, which is a uh, outgrowth of the uh, very successful Sudbury Neutrino Observatory or Snow Project. And uh, there are many uh, international projects now that are happening there. Uh, this is a project, uh, uh, these projects that we're involved in use liquid argon as a means of looking for evidence for dark matter particles that we know exist. They're basically what holds our uh, galaxy in its current form. and. Uh, it, uh, however, has not been observed directly. And uh, by going deep underground and avoiding cosmic rays, by using a very highly uh, radioactive, pure uh, device, and by using the properties of argon, we look for the nucleus argon recoiling after being hit by a dark matter particle. It gives out light in about 10 nanoseconds, if that is the case, and it takes about 10 microseconds if there's a background radioactivity that causes a bit of light to be produced in our detector. But that's such a strong ability to get rid of other things other than dark matter that it creates great sensitivity. And uh, we're pursuing it next with a detector 10 times larger in Italy in an underground laboratory there. And we're at the same time designing an experiment that'll be 10 times bigger than that back in Snow Lab in a number of years time. And so by dealing with argon, we are we have gained a lot of experience in handling ultra pure gases. And at the height of the uh, uh, of the pandemic in Italy, if you remember back in, in March, uh, Italy was a very big hotspot for uh, <clears throat> COVID-19. My senior colleague on the project, Cristiano Gabbiati, 
was in Milan, one of the hotspots. And uh, he suddenly realized that the techniques that we use in handling argon gas could equivalently enable us to use our expertise to produce what could be quite a simple form of ventilator, mm -hmm. characteristic of what we started to build, one that uses a minimum number of parts and can be built inexpensively compared to other ventilators and targeted specifically for COVID-19. And so that's how it started. Uh, I immediately contacted uh, members of our collaboration here in Canada and also the Triumph Laboratory uh, and in Vancouver, the Canadian Nuclear Laboratories in Chalk River, as well as Snow Lab, the directors of those uh, facilities. In all cases, the directors and also the scientists and engineers who made up our team as we move forward were very pleased to be able to do something constructive in these pandemic difficult days. Uh, using the skills that they had developed in a, in a variety of ways, handling gases, using software to program things very uh, uh, elaborately, making sure we have pure uh, safety measures in the device, uh, and so on. And so the team came together, worked for a number of months, and now uh, at this point, uh, we have approval to move forward. Authorization from Health Canada. Thank you very much. Now, can you tell us what it is about the MVM that distinguishes it from other ventilators for the treatment of COVID-19? Well, it's very uh, uh, specifically targeted at uh, uh, COVID-19, and it has a minimum number of uh, inherent uh, components on the order of 50 or so, compared to something like 1,500 uh, in the more sophisticated uh, devices that are used for many other purposes as well. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, it's an inlet valve and an outlet valve and very elaborate software to uh, program the gas flow through those valves to match what is needed by a patient. And as, in addition to that, it has a large number of sensors to, to enable that to happen and also safety uh, valves and safety provisions in the software using those sensors to make sure that it's delivered uh, to the patient in as safe a way as possible. And in that, we were aided greatly uh, as one example of what, how this team came together by software specialists from, from Canadian nuclear laboratories uh, who are, of course, in their regular day job, producing safe software for the control of nuclear reactors. Mm -hmm. and so that sort of use of skilled people to accomplish a task that is uh, of value to uh, the general public uh, <clears throat> that inspired uh, these people who worked so hard over so many months to uh, make this happen. Okay, so now you've worked with a team of Canadian physicists and engineers on this international project from across the country, as well as right here at Queen's University at the Macdonald Institute. With whom have you collaborated and what inspired your involvement? Well, people at the Macdonald Institute, of course, are, uh, that's an institute that's been established 
at Queens, directed by my colleague, Professor Tony Noble, which is uh, uh, using a, uh, a substantial grant, a Canada First Research Excellent grant on the order of $70 million over seven years to uh, really stimulate the area that we work in associated with the Snow Lab facility called Particle Astrophysics. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's resulted in the, in the hiring of some 15 uh, faculty members at, at institutions across the country and, and, and in Queens in particular. And also has an administrative staff who uh, are working on that program, but also on significant uh, outreach and public education. And so various members of the, of the uh, McDonald Institute group, including you know, scientists, uh, uh, people who are skilled in, uh, in software, in, uh, uh, in uh, the design of equipment, uh, and also uh, assistance provided with respect to various administrative tasks and relationship to regulatory agencies and so on uh, pitched in. But in addition, uh, the institutions I mentioned, Triumph, CNL, Chalk River, and Snow Lab, uh, provided personnel who have, again, a variety of skills. A uh, significant part of our testing was done at Triumph. A uh, significant amount of the engineering was done at, uh, uh, at uh, CNL. And uh, uh, large contributions were made by scientists and engineers at Snow Lab as well. Thank you very much for sharing some more information on your collaborations. Now, your extensive scientific work solving the mysteries of dark matter in space on the surface seems beyond the area of designing terrestrial ventilators. Maybe for our non-expert listeners out there, or perhaps even some students thinking about careers in particle astrophysics, how did your expertise cross that disciplinary divide to inform the design of a medical device? Well, of course, our, our normal activity as experimental physicists is the design of very sophisticated uh, pieces of experimental equipment. The SNOW project was a prime example of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's true also with our dark matter detectors using liquid argon, which, as I've already mentioned, is, is, uh, involves gas handling at a, at a high degree of uh, uh, you know, the, the, the specifications for this detector uh, that we are building are very, uh, very stringent. And, uh, and so uh, the technology is at the frontier of, uh, of gas handling, purification, and so on. Mm -hmm. and so from that point of view, there was a significant overlap. Uh, you know, the, the thought is that when you're educating people in this field, that what you're doing is educating people who might eventually be university professors. And that, for example, is, is exactly what happened uh, with 25% of the roughly 200 students and postdocs that we uh, educated on the snow project. But in a survey done 10 years after uh, the uh, project was finished taking data referring to snow, Sudbury Neutrino Observatory, we found that the other 75% were in a wide variety of, uh, of uh, occupations uh, ranging from uh, having started their own company uh, usually in the technology field, to uh, working for the government, uh, or working in the financial industry, or working in uh, high-tech laboratories, uh, in not necessarily just in physics, in medicine, and 
geophysics and a variety of other things. So the breadth of the education that is provided by working on a very challenging and fundamental basic science project also equips people very well for uh, the ability to uh, interface uh, with other technologies, uh, become involved in multidisciplinary activities and uh, make significant contributions. So it's not so far from the sort of thing that's being done in the education we're providing to people who work on our projects. Thank you for those insights. Now, can you tell us how projects like this are supported through the research and development process? Well, we were very, uh, very pleased that the uh, uh, directors of the laboratories, for example, were uh, able to uh, say to us and, and, and get support from, from their uh, uh, relevant agencies to use the skills that existed across the board in Canada to address, in this case, a, a real crisis in, uh, uh, in the uh, overall uh, uh, handling of uh, COVID-19. It's just one component in the process of uh, trying to deal with this really unique situation we find ourselves in in Canada and in the rest of the world. And uh, so uh, there was no problem in uh, people approving temporary uh, repro repurposing of people's activities to address this project. And, and for that, we're very grateful. And uh, so it, it, it was uh, very valuable to us also to have had early in the project after we had developed and shown a proof of principle of working of the device to have the government of Canada to uh, make a, uh, to include us in a list of four potential manufacturers that they uh, uh, had designated as uh, ones to whom they would provide a uh, purchase contract if in fact uh, through the process of developing and testing the devices uh, we could meet the standards that uh, are imposed uh, appropriately by uh, Health Canada, the authorizing agent for such devices. And so uh, having that support, uh, we uh, had the, the uh, uh, ability to bring in uh, manufacturers. Uh, and that was a very important part of this from mm -hmm. the very beginning, starting with manufacturers in Italy and uh, then uh, working directly with uh, manufacturers here in Canada from the first few weeks of the project, actually, because it's one thing to design your own piece of equipment that's going to be used to detect inanimate things. Uh -huh. Another thing to, uh, as we discovered, and, and, uh, and, and I think I've been very conscientious uh, uh, on as a topic, and that is designing something that's going to be fully safe for use on human subjects. And so having manufacturers come in uh, and uh, work with us on uh, improving the uh, devices we designed in the first place to make them not only manufacturable uh, in, a, in a large scale production, we're trying to build 10,000 of them for this government contract over a period of about uh, three or four months. And uh, not only that, but also uh, 
such that they would be extremely reliable, which is where a lot of our testing work went in when it came to the information we had to submit to Health Canada. So overall, there was general approval that this was a uh, worthwhile thing for people to be doing, including the support from the federal government uh, saying that uh, they would be willing to uh, provide a, a contract to us, uh, which they did in order that the manufacturers could then get started and uh, finalize the testing necessary to uh, satisfy Health Canada, which is what's being announced today. Great. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about the process of identifying and selecting the MVM manufacturer, Vexos Inc.? What does this organization do outside of building ventilators? Well, Vexos uh, is a company that uh, uh, usually is working on the production of electronic uh, parts of sophisticated uh, equipment in a variety of areas, in particular, including medical equipment. And they, they were uh, already in a partnership with the Italian company that uh, uh, we started work with in uh, Italy, which was based in Milan. Uh, the, uh, it, was, it was immediately apparent to us that this was a valuable uh, manufacturing partner for us here in Canada, particularly when they were joined also by another company. Nexus is in Markham. There's another company, JMP Solutions in uh, London, Ontario. Uh, both of them had immediately indicated uh, way back in March they were interested in uh, becoming involved in the manufacturing process for uh, ventilators, and they became partners. And it is the combination of the two that eventually negotiated a uh, manufacturing contract with uh, the federal government. We have been in continual contact with them. In fact, they've been involved in our, well, what were became daily meetings on, uh, uh, on this project and still are, are uh, ongoing as we move into production and make sure the quality assurance is uh, what we would like to have to match the tests we did on small numbers of devices. Now we need to, to do it for 10,000. And uh, so we're still interacting with them in a substantial way to make sure that that is the uh, is the process as we go forward and moving on with the theme of process tell us about the prototype approval process from health canada for non-experts out there how do we actually move from invention to approved manufacturer and construction well there are substantial uh, regulations for uh, the uh, uh, authorization for use of uh, mechanical ventilators. They're spelled out on the uh, Health Canada website, mm -hmm. uh, along with uh, regulations required for a wide variety of other things that are related to COVID, per, uh, you know, personal protective equipment and, and things that you, uh, uh, that, that have come to the fore in this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the uh, regulations are uh, right now, uh, modified slightly under what's called an interim order, which is something that is specific to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and is uh, just slightly less complete uh, 
than uh, what you would go through in terms of uh, uh, authorizing uh, these pieces of equipment for long-term use. Uh, and uh, uh, so the sort of thing you have to do is to go through a, an extensive set of tests that uh, indicate that you have uh, uh, covered all of the different uh, questions with respect to patient safety mm -hmm. that you want covered, that your software is, uh, uh, is uh, produced uh, according to uh, uh, very stringent standards uh, such that it is uh, very clear uh, that it is adequate to the task and that it is very straightforward to go back and modify if you find that it has to be. Uh, and then you go through a rigid set of tests uh, specified by the ISO certification for these devices, including you know, electrical tests and environmental tests, as well as pure fu functional tests. All of that information is submitted to Health Canada on the order of 300 pages, I think, by the time we were finished. And uh, then they go through a a very stringent uh, uh, well, authorization process, review and authorization, which we were very pleased to have passed and now have the ability to go on with our manufacturing. Interesting. Now, do you feel like the approval process was faster than usual, given the current situation with COVID-19? Yes, it was faster than, than you would for uh, uh, find for a normal uh, uh, approval process for the long-term use and, and in fact we will resubmit for long-term use uh, and expect them to uh, take somewhat longer for approval mm -hmm. on the few extra things that are needed for that process. But it still took a while mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, uh, so we've been, we've been waiting for a, a little bit uh, to uh, get the approval but uh, uh, we don't disagree with the thoroughness that they uh, have applied for this uh, authorization. It's actually the sort that we ourselves would want to be applying uh, for that daunting uh, uh, situation where you're trying to produce something that's going to be uh, helping someone in a very uh, significant uh, health crisis uh, mm -hmm. under COVID-19. So uh, um, I have a, a lot of respect for Health Canada and what they do, and they've been very helpful to us along the way. Okay, so now that Vexos has received Health Canada's approval to manufacture 10,000 ventilators, what timeline are we looking at for completion and delivery of the order? When will they start to be used in Canadian hospitals? Well, the manufacturers tell us that they will be able to do that uh, by the end of the year, that is to supply the full set. and. Uh, uh, perhaps uh, perhaps uh, the last few will end up being supplied in January, but uh, uh, within the next month, uh, they will be supplied to the federal government. It's up to the federal government uh, how they deploy them. Uh, initially, I think their objective is to build up a stockpile. Mm -hmm. uh, that's according to our fondest hope that, in fact, uh, uh, public behavior is such that we're able to uh, uh, level the uh, uh, the second wave uh, effectively. Uh, there is some has been some discussion uh, by the federal government in the past that uh, these may be that the ventilators that they have purchased 
might possibly also be distributed to other countries uh, in need, uh, but, uh, and, and there are very substantial needs around the world right now, if you look at any of the, any of the uh, reporting of numbers of cases and number of serious cases in places like uh, South America, Africa, India, mm -hmm. and so on. Even Europe is, is ramping back up again, uh, unfortunately. So, but those are decisions to be made by the federal government. Our responsibility is simply to provide a safe device for them. All right. Have you anything else to add before we close our show today about the Mechanical Ventilator Milano Project and the work of your team? Well, I, I think uh, I uh, am extremely grateful to the uh, large number of people. Uh, we have a website, mvm.care, C-A-R-E, uh, that uh, shows the number of uh, different institutions and people working on the project, literally hundreds of people who have contributed in one way or another. Uh, I'm just amazed at the uh, dedication of these people. Uh, when we were working seven days a week, uh, they were working seven days a week to uh, accomplish the various stages of the project. And I think most people tell us that it's quite remarkable to have started from square zero and uh, had a device that uh, is capable of being uh, submitted for certification in, uh, in on the order of four months. Uh, the uh, uh, other thing I'd like to say is a word of gratitude to uh, donors uh, who uh, contributed uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in the early stages to this project prior to the point where we had a government contract in place, uh, which made it possible for us to meet the demands of suppliers of a number of very critical elements that we required. The, the, the ramp up in the production of ventilators worldwide meant that suppliers were saying to us, okay, we can give you this critical part. And it was an advantage for us to only be trying to get on the order of 50 or so uh, components, but for, for a number of the central critical parts, we were in a situation where they were asking for us to provide money to, to completely purchase the 10,000 of these, or in some cases, 20,000, where there are a couple of similar sensors in the device. Donors stepped forward, uh, created a fund here, uh, which was, uh, for which I'm very grateful, uh, Queen's University allowed us to establish at the university. And uh, as a result, we were able to guarantee the purchase of those. And now that we have the money uh, back, we will use those funds. We've already used them for uh, the purchase of a very sophisticated human lung simulator for our testing, uh, which will come back to the Queen's Medical School when this uh, uh, project is complete. And uh, in addition to that, uh, I'm hopeful to uh, use the funds to uh, supply ventilators uh, to uh, countries in need uh, as we go forward. So uh, that sort of philanthropy at a very critical time in the project was essential for our success. Mm -hmm. I'm grateful to those philanthropists, but also to our whole team for the dedication they brought to this project. Thank you very much. And now 
finally, what's coming up next for Dr. Arthur McDonald? <laughs> well, theoretically, I'm retired. <laughs> theoretically. <laughs> but I never did do much theory in, in the first place. So anyway, um, today happens to be the day that we are submitting our, pardon me, our project group is submitting requests to NSERC for funding for these major dark matter uh, experiments that we have going forward. And so I've been flipping back and forth between uh, uh, things like we're doing right now and finalizing uh, editing along with my colleagues of the information that's being submitted. I'm hoping to be able to continue to work with these wonderful young people. And, and I can say young people because they're all younger than me, <laughs> but I mean the real young people, the students and postdocs and so on that are uh, so much involved in this cutting edge research. I don't have students and I don't, you know, graduate students of my own, but I have interaction with the ones who are working on the project and that continues to be a very satisfying situation. And we're able to provide students with a experience of working at uh, the frontier of particle astrophysics uh, at, you know, the, some of the, some of the best research facilities in the world for the type of fundamental questions we are attempting to address. What is 25% of our universe, five times as much ma mass as the matter from which we ourselves are composed, things of this nature. And so uh, it continues to inspire me and I continue to work on it. So uh, I'm fortunate that Queens has given me an emeritus position that enables me to to continue to do this. So, um, still having fun. And that is a cheerful note to end on. Thank you very much, Arthur. And we have been chatting with Professor Arthur McDonald, Nobel Laureate in Physics, and the Gordon and Patricia Gray Chair in Particle Astrophysics Emeritus in the Department of Physics, Engineering Physics, and Astronomy here at Queen's University. Thank you for joining us in the Virtual Campus Beat Studio today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.